Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to the best of my time capsule 2022 part 2. Long title, wasn't it? My name is Mike Fenton Stevens and throughout this year I've been talking to various guests about the five things they'd like to have in a time capsule. Four things they cherish from their life and one they'd rather forget. And this is the second of our compilation episodes where we play you the best bits from some of those guests. That's not an easy task, I promise you. What do I choose from what they chose? It is a brutal process. It's worse than choosing who to vote for in the Strictly final. But I've managed to do it. Well, I've narrowed it down to about 15 hours worth of clips. Still a little bit of work to do. Of course, some are obvious, like this first clip from the comedy genius that is Mr. Harry Hill. Yeah, I know I had him in the first episode, but he's so funny. So, the, yeah, the ukulele banjo, which I've also got here if you want. Yeah, I'm happy. Do you want to play me something? Well. I was uh, a member of the George Formby Society, and we did, when the Queen was 92 or something, mm. a couple of years ago, they got us all together at the Albert Hall <gasps> to play Cleaning Windows. And actually, the funny thing was, was that they... <laughs> It was just like one of those weird BBC shows it's for the Queen, right? So the Queen and all the royal family there, Camilla, Charles, Harry and mm-hmm. uh, William. And they got the George Formby Society, plus me, Frank Skinner and Ed Balls for some reason. Yes. And and then they've got Sting and Shaggy. <laughs> you know, all the Queen's favourites. Kylie Minogue. Tom Jones is there. And, you know, those sort of events, the day is really great fun because they're all, everyone's hanging around backstage, you're bumping into Tom Jones and you're bumping into Sting and Shaggy. And in fact, me and Frank, we were waiting to go on and Sting and Shaggy came by it. And Sting goes, oh, you know, you're doing the George Formby thing. And he started singing Leaning on the Lamp. And me and Frank started playing it. And um, Oh, my God. It's quite a funny moment. Anyway, no, but the thing was... They said to us, what happened at the end is that Tom Jones and Kylie, I think, were on. He said, and everyone will line up backstage and then the Queen will walk on and she'll sort of, you know, take the applause. Mm-hmm. And so uh, we did our bit. I'm waiting backstage in the dark, at the, you know, in the wings at the Albert Hall. And right on the end, 
right, the last one on. And I'm thinking, oh, great, you know, no one's even going to see me, you know, in that sort of <laughs> selfish way. Anyway, I look round, and behind me is the Queen. <laughs> right, I look round, and I say, oh, hello. And she goes, um, it's awfully dark, isn't it? And I said to her, haven't you got a torch, Your Majesty? <laughs> and she's, <laughs> she kind of looked at me like I was... Not allowed to talk to her like that. No. <laughs> and then Frank Skinner said, you should have your own torch bearer, surely, Your Majesty. And you know, like that. And, and then um, Ed Balls got wind of it, like any politician sort of moved in. And, and it became his joke. It became his uh, night, yeah. That's an anecdote that he now tells at mm. dinner parties. Opens with it, I've heard. <laughs> anyway. Here we go, go on. Uh, in our family, we've got an. In our family, we've got an heirloom. That's it, I've got it. It was handed, it was. Hey, I've forgotten it. <laughs> Let's play something easier. <laughs> A bit rusty, mate. A bit rusty. Harry Hill, comedy genius, ukulele player and lovely man. Now, if any of these clips pique your interest and you didn't manage to hear the full episode when it came out, you know, something pretty bloody momentous happened that made you miss it, like uh, well, a wedding, birth, family bereavement, that sort of thing, just search My Time Capsule on any podcast player and they will all be there waiting for you, like a mugger in a dark alleyway. Actually, speaking of weddings, well, I sort of was, let's hear this lovely bit from the actress Nicola Stevenson, who's been in just about everything, including The Walk-In, Broke, The Worst Witch, Emmerdale, and loads of other stuff. Here she is talking about a very special letter. So the second thing, oh, I might just go and get it, actually. I got, uh, can, I, can I just go, sorry. Okay. I, I meant to, I meant yeah, that's to all right. Sorry, I had to get it because I've got to read from it. <laughs> okay, so this next thing is... Um, oh, I'll be out of breath and I'm running up and down the stairs. <laughs> Take your time. Okay, so um, my dad... My my dad died in 2007. He was only 57. So he died very young. And um, when he died, he, he left me a, a letter. I don't know if he knew he was going to die. He He had been quite unwell. Mm. And um, he left me the most amazing letter, which is so extraordinary that he wrote that, you know, such a young age. And he gave it to a family friend and said, when I die, would you give this to Nicola? And um, as I've already said, my my mum and dad married when I was sort of eight. And Mm. so he was my stepdad, but I always called him daddy. He brought me up. And um, this letter is, is beautiful and it's just all, you know, about what a privilege it was to, to be my dad and bring me up and oh, I'm going to get emotional. But he had also, <laughs> with this letter, um, written a not-as-nice speech in preparation for being a father of the bride because <laughs> at this point I was in my mid-30s and still hadn't met the person I was, was going to marry and settle down with. Oh, I was like a sort of eternal bachelorette um <laughs> just like endlessly looking for mr right <laughs> going from one disastrous relationship to another 
and really wanted to kind of have children and meet meet my one and it just wasn't happening for me and bless me dad <laughs> Jesus, if she doesn't hurry up with it, I'm gonna <laughs> I'm not gonna get to be the father of the bride. So I'm gonna write I'm gonna write this speech anyway, and maybe it will put it out there into the universe and she'll meet him, sort of thing. Yeah. And I've got it. Uh-huh. And it's the most special thing because it's a bit of him and it's in his handwriting, which is really weird, isn't it? That somebody's handwriting mm. is is you remember that person so well from their from their handwriting. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And it, he died um, literally the year before I had Esme, my eldest daughter. So, I mean, literally just a few months before I got pregnant with her. Uh-huh. So he never met her or my husband, Paul. He never met Paul and he never met, obviously, my second daughter, Iris. Mm-hmm. So none of them know him. And now they're everything to me. And we have him Mike my dad is in the kitchen with us he he hangs in the wall in our kitchen where everything everything happens in the kitchen doesn't it in a family and so we have dinner with him every night and we talk about him constantly and the kids talk about him like they knew him but Mm. they never knew him and he never knew them and it's really sad makes me really sad but I've got so when when I did finally get married to Paul my uncle Paul who's also Paul Stevenson was the father of the but he gave me away because he was my dad's brother and he read the speech out oh how brilliant and it's just it's my dad's sense of humor my dad was he was a police officer and he was very very dry very sarcastic Mm. and he basically just slags me off all the way through this (laughs) it's like but it starts off i'll read a little bit of it please do it starts off it says because I think he presumed, my mum lived in California at the time, and I think he presumed that I was going to get married there and mm-hmm. everybody would have to go there. I don't know why. But anyway, it starts off. I'm not sure why we had to travel. I'll do it in his voice. Yeah. I'm not sure why we had to travel all this way. I'd reserved the upstairs room of the Grime and Sediment pub in Oldham. <laughs> my local vicar, Amberall's Clutterbucket, <laughs> had ordered new dentures in honour of doing the service. <laughs> my celebrity daughter. <laughs> Oh, how brilliant. That's how it starts. And then he basically just slags me off about how many boyfriends I've had (laughs) and how much money I cost him growing up. (laughs) (laughs) And it goes on and on. And he just tells loads of really, really bad jokes. And then it says, she is not, nor has ever been, cheap to run. (laughs) (laughs) Just a brief description of Nicola. Now, my uncle Paul did read this out at the wedding. Difficult, complex. Challenging, endearing, stubborn, contentious, confrontational, loving, genuine, stubborn. Did I already mention stubborn? <laughs> Wonderful, awesome, argumentative, and a pain in the glutamus maximus. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, blank. You'd leave the name blank. Best of luck controlling that package, pal. By the way, just a quickie. For God's sake, man, you need to check her car for water and oil for the rest of your life, and that's just the way it is. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my <laughs> word. He so wanted to make that speech, didn't he? He really did, didn't he? Mm. And that was like, you know, now when whenever Paul does something particularly, like when he has to mend my computer and things like that, he'll say, checking your car for oil and water. Because you don't need to check cars for oil and water now, do you? <laughs> no, not really, no. You don't really do that? <laughs> no. <laughs> Oh, that's lovely, though. (laughs) But then at the end, after he's made all the awful jokes about me, he says, um, he said, Nicola is the only daughter to myself and Lynn. 
there is not a day goes by without me thanking God and whoever else has had a hand in it that I have had Nicola in my life. Uh, and that, and that, was the, that was as far as he got with it. That's far enough, I think. That's, that's beautiful. That's, that's my prized possession. I bet, yeah. That I will keep forever because, um, yeah, <laughs> it's really funny that he was he was so desperate for it to happen uh, that he wrote the speech anyway and just put it out into the universe. <laughs> it's a good idea. I think I might write some letters. Now, one of my most interesting guests this year was the performer Jess Tom, who performs under the title Tourette's Hero, obviously because she has Tourette's. And bloody hell did I learn a thing or two. It's amazing the things you can remain blissfully ignorant about, isn't it? If you know nothing about Tourette's or just think it's people swearing in embarrassing situations, then I'd listen to the episode with Jess. It certainly opened my eyes. Anyway, here she is, telling me about the thing that sort of drove her to become a performer. I think as a society, we've been conditioned to understand and to expect that attention and focus looks a particular way that it mm. is always like it to show attention is to be quiet and to be still biscuit um and actually for lots of people that is not the way that they would concentrate or attention looks different for different bodies and minds yeah. trust me if i'm being still or quiet biscuit all my biscuit all my energy is going into controlling my body yeah. and i'm not listening to anything you're saying biscuit <laughs> if i'm able to and it's you know i think that 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 that's something that gets established really early on within education systems. And I think that it, mm. it means that we shape the world for this normative, idealised body and mind mm. that doesn't really exist. Um, and theatre definitely is definitely one of the spaces that that's been sort of ramped up. And Biscuit, and as, a, as a young person going to theatre, that it was, it was some of those rules that made it feel like it wasn't a space that I could be in. Mm. Um, uh, Biscuit and... Uh, yeah, and you sort of talked about that, Mark. I was really torn about whether to put the Mark Thomas experience in as a, as a moment to cherish. Yeah. Because actually that that was a really difficult thing to experience, to be asked to move, partly because, because of the, t- my, the biscuit, my, my ticks. For anybody who doesn't know, biscuit. they asked you to move to a soundproof booth, didn't they? Yeah, they did. So I said, yeah, basically, I'd, yeah. And, I, and that was after, you know, I'd been in touch with Mark beforehand. I'd been in touch with the theatre. He'd introduced me to the audience. Of it felt like we'd done everything right. And still at the interval, I was asked to move to, yeah, the, the sound booth at the side of the stage. And it was behind oh. glass. And it was it was um, Extreme Rambling, which was a show about him walking the Palestinian separation barrier. So it was about segregation. And it was then... It, it was a very weird experience, and I think that, and it was a very distress. I, I find that really upsetting, and I, yeah. sort of, I sobbed in this sound booth watching the rest of the show. Oh lord! And um, biscuit, and in that moment, I promised myself that I was never going to set foot in another theatre. But actually, interestingly, that was, that turned out to be the moment that actually was transformational for me, and was a, a moment where I was. So the options were to move away and never set foot in a theatre, mm. or to occupy the only seat in the house I knew I wouldn't be asked to to leave which was on stage so and that was <laughs> ultimately what I was supported to do and yeah. and Mark's response was really interesting and we've had Mark's been incredibly supportive of me and of Tourette's Hero more generally mm. but also it's really interesting that Mark does relaxed performances and and other accessible provides other access requirements for every run of his shows now and it's like that it feels like he definitely was really thoughtful in his response to that after after the event 
Well done, Mark Thomas, a man who was also a brilliant guest on My Time Capsule. But then I suppose I think they've all been pretty brilliant in their own way. People who have a public profile, or are famous, as the papers like to call it, aren't really who they appear on the TV. And everyone's had difficult things to cope with in their life. Take the wonderful presenter of MasterChef, John Tarode. His life seems blessed almost. And yet when I asked him to tell me the things he treasured from that life, the first thing he chose was a little model car, a model of Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. So I have an original model of a Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, which, of course, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang came out in 1969. Mm-hmm. The movie came out in 1969. My mother died in 1970. Oh. So um, my last birthday present from my mother was my Chitty Chitty Bang Bang on my fourth birthday. Uh, and I have it with me still, and I always will have it with me. And I, I just, it, it's one of those things that goes with me everywhere. And um, it's been with me for, for 53 years coming up, and it still sits in my bedroom, and I still see it, and I look at it, and it's my little thing for my mum, I suppose. Mm. And um, it's, you know, really important in the fact that I grew up without a mother, and I don't really know what it was like to have a mother. No. If that makes sense. No, absolutely. Of four, what would you remember? My people say to me, you know, what, what's it like? Uh, I don't know. Mm. I have no idea. I don't know what it's like not to have a mum. I don't know. Well, is it different? Well, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what it was like. And and so, you know, for me, we, we had a very, very fortunate life. My father, my two brothers, we had a stepmother for, for a while. But, you know, we as, as four boys grew up in a world which was, Good fun. We bumped along really, really nicely. Um, and I, I, you know, not that I, I sort of miss my mother, but I would have liked to have known her. Mm. Um, and actually, I'm looking at a picture of her right now. She was a very, very beautiful woman, but I didn't, I don't know her. So she's immortalized somewhere and somehow. Um, but the chili chili bang bang is is the thing. It sits there. And I got, I remember what I got. And that's funny, there's only a couple of memories of the house that we lived in then. And I got that Chitty Chitty Bang Bang and I got a Hot Wheels set, a oh. Mattel Hot Wheels set, where you put the plastic strips together with these little sort of orange things together and you had a, and, and I had a ramp that went at the top and it came down. Now, being four, I dare say it wasn't very big, but I think it was, I thought it was about as tall as a building. And it was probably <laughs> as tall as me at that stage. Mm. And I just, I loved it. I mean, it was just great. And, and it had a loop. So it used to come down. And if you did it really well, then it would go around the loop and come out the other side. Yeah. But yeah, that Chitty Chitty Bang Bang is the only thing that still, still hangs around. Yeah. But it's there. Yeah. Would it be rude to ask how your mother died? Uh, well, the, 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 the present word on it, and it's been taking many, many years because in the 1970s, it wasn't talked about. You were told just to get on with it. Um, but, uh, my father only recently told me that because I'd, I'd believe that she, she died in hospital, mm. that she fell unwell and that she died on in hospital or in ambulance. But my father recently told me that she, he died, she died uh, in the bed next to him. Oh, he heard, he woke at three o'clock in the morning and I said, how did you wake? He said, because I could hear the death rattles, um, which is pretty extraordinary for my father to say. It was their wedding anniversary. Oh. They'd been out for dinner and came home, but um, apparently she'd had a thyroid operation and they believed that may, she may have had some sort of issue with her heart. So the diagnosis or the death certificate says cardiomyopathy, which of course is disease of the heart. Mm. But, you know, we were always told it was a heart attack, um, but she was 31. Mm three boys and, and, you know, never got to see any of us grow up. And um, we're still really good mates, all three of us, which is, I think, for my father's joy. Yeah. 
Well, well done him. What an extraordinary thing to be left with suddenly with these boys. Yeah, no, he's an extraordinary man. He he worked really hard at it. And he, what happened was that my mother and my father had moved to Melbourne from New South Wales. So, you know, 1,200 kilometres away from where they, they were originally living. Mm. Set up a business making orange juice. And, um, and when my mother died, my father continued to do the business to make sure that he had enough money to make sure that we as boys grew up well. And then when we were about, I was about 11, I suppose, we moved back with my dad. Um, and then we lived in sort of, you know, suburban Melbourne and he decided that we needed more. So he bought a big house on the beach. Wow. And our house was on sand and he bought it so that we had somewhere that we as boys, us three boys could go and run and get the, you know, the craziness out of our system and mm-hmm. send us to a decent school. And, um, you know, we, we've turned out all right. Yeah. I mean, there was, a few, there was a few potholes on the way, you know, <laughs> a few speed bumps here and there, yeah. the, odd, the odd trip up and bloody nose, the odd, you know, busted toe, but otherwise <laughs> we, we did all right. Yes, they did do all right. I must say, part of the fun of recording my time capsule is getting to visit people in their home, if only, as is usually the case, on Zoom. But occasionally when I link up with guests, they surprise me, like the Irish stand-up comedian Jason Byrne, who appeared on the screen sitting in his car near Dublin docks, talking into his phone. This tends to mean that the sound quality isn't going to be the greatest, but I never underestimate the quality of what they're going to say. I was an altar boy. I was a head altar boy. And uh, I was the one with the big cross, you know? Oh, big cross. Yeah. Yeah. So I had four lads behind me with, with shitty little candles, but I had the big cross. Mm. And the priest was behind them. So I was I was in charge. I was more or less the MC. You know, I was <laughs> leading the whole thing. <laughs> Where you so went, I they was, followed. <laughs> yeah. And I remember when Mass was literally sold out. It was like hundreds of people just, and me going up with the big cross. So how slow or fast I went was how quick we got to the, up to the thingy. <laughs> so we went up one day and it was all so like, oh my God, it was just unbelievable. So spiritual. I get the big cross. It was almost, do you know like Indiana Jones, the Raiders of the Lost Ark, where he puts the staff in and the light goes, boing, like that. In the th- <laughs> That's what I did. I had a thing for that. I used to put it down and in my head, I used to try and get, because the sun used to come down behind us yeah. through the church windows. Oh. In my head, I used to pretend I was Indiana Jones. I just I plop it in and I would just light up the whole church. But I put it in and I sat down and I was really, I was so confident as a, as a, as a kid. I sat there and the priest went, Dear Guive, right? Which in, it's, that's Irish for hello or good day or, you know, or here we go, mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff. So when you see someone or meet someone, you'd go, Dear Guive. Right, and so Dia Grieve and I just looked at the my mates, my other altar boys, and I went, "Oh shit!" Went what? This is nine thirty mass, as in half nine mass on Patrick's Day. It was in fucking Irish, <laughs> the whole thing. Now we in Ireland learn Irish for nine years. We can't understand any of it. <laughs> we can we can fully write it, we can read it, yes. but we don't understand it. So there's the priest, right, and. Hundreds of people, and he's going, Be Grieve, Irish, Shiv, Sharon, Shockton. He's talking full Irish, and I'm going, I don't know any of my cues now. And I mean, this is a big mass. <laughs> this is 9 30 at St. Patrick's Day. Like, this is the big, all the reviewers are in. That's what you're going to take, right? And I'm going, shit. So, the first mishap was I went up with a, I, I used to bring his water 
and he cleaned his hands with while he was doing the Holy Communion, but mm. you know, turning it into into the body of Christ. And I just went up too early. I thought he said, I thought that's what he was doing. <laughs> and he started trying to elbow me away from him in front of everybody. <laughs> and he was going, not yet, not yet. I went, okay. So I backed away. So cut to then the biggest <laughs> moment was where I had to go down because in front of him and we knee, I would always kneel on the steps, like a big, huge, imagine a huge church. Mm. I kneel on the steps with the bell, the big bells. I had those big jingling, and then that was it, Michael. Oh my God. <laughs> I am looking at him and I am ringing those bells and I'm getting them all wrong. <laughs> There's people standing up and I'm going ling, ling, ling and they're all sitting down again. And it, it went on and on and then eventually I thought, the mass was over. I got my stick. I must have been 10 minutes too early. And I was just standing with the stick. The priest has <laughs> left me there. What a funny man Jason Bird is. I love talking to him. Not that I did much talking, of course. OK, before we take a little break for some adverts, let's hear from the one and only Chesney Hawks. God, I bet he gets sick of that who, if they'd let him sing his hit song at half-time in the game between England and France in the World Cup, I bet we would have won. Oh, well, marchons, marchons, as they say. No one was going to beat the team with Messi in it, were they? Still, Chesney did appear on my time capsule and told me all about his dad's piano. That his dad is in the tremolos, in case you didn't know. Yeah, all right, I'll shut up and let him speak. You're right. Silence is golden. That was a tremolos hit, in case you didn't know. Yes, all right, shush, shush. When I was a kid in the 70s, we had a piano and it was, it's a baby grand Broadway piano. And it used to belong to John Lennon. Oh my God. And the story goes, the story goes, my dad in the early 70s was working at Titnus Park Studios, which is the house is John Lennon's old house. Is that where Imagine was filmed? Yes. If you ever see the Imagine videos with John and Yoko walking around the gardens. Mm -hmm. So that's Titnus Park. There was a studio there and my dad happened to be recording there. And he turned up to work one day and there's this piano sitting on the lawn in the rain. And it wasn't long after Lennon had moved to New York and sold Titmus Park to Ringo. Right. So dad asked the engineer, what, what's the deal with that piano out there? And he said, oh yeah, that, that's, uh, that was John's and uh, Ringo doesn't want it. So he's just, he's just put it out there for now. Oh no. So dad was, I was just going to get ruined. He said, yeah, I know. I, I don't know what to say, you know. He's like, well, I could take it if you want. And he's, he said, uh, well, um, <laughs> I'll ask, I'll ask Ringo. So he came back to work the next day. He said, did you manage to talk to Ringo about the piano? He said, yeah, 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 you can have it. No worries. So dad just legged it out of the studio, found a mate <laughs> with a transit van. Yeah, I bet. He literally backed it up, put it in the back of a transit van and brought that home. And that's the piano that I learned to play on. Oh my God. <laughs> so it was in my front room. And I like the first song I ever learned to play was Imagine, mm. honestly. So that's why I'm such a John Lennon freak. <laughs> I went to New York when I was 19 and uh, I was there to promote a record, but I was only interested in going to all the places that John Lennon had been, you know, photographed at or famously had lived or, and yeah, obviously yeah. died at the Dakota. But I did, it's like a pilgrimage for me. I went to the Imagine Circle in Strawberry Fields. And then I wrote a song about it called John Lennon Lived Here. Mm. Um, with Nick Kershaw, for enough. Anyway, that piano, uh, when my parents moved out of their house that I grew up in uh, and moved to a smaller house, I inherited the piano and it came to my house when my kids started to learn on that piano. <laughs> and then when I moved to the States 10 years after that, 
I gave it to Nick Kershaw or I lent it to Nick yeah, Kershaw. Lent it, lent it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. My dad always says, you didn't give it to him, did you? <laughs> <laughs> so it's now sitting in Nick's front room, you know? So um, wow. if that piano could talk, eh? Not to talk about the value of a thing like that, because without <laughs> yeah. a doubt, we know yeah. if you can genuinely prove that these were instruments used by the Beatles and suddenly those yeah. things are ridiculously expensive. Yeah. But the very fact of having had him play on that. Yeah, it's you know, pretty... In that room, I mean, I know that the Imagine video yeah. is on a large white grand piano, isn't it? Yeah, it's not that piano. No. That piano actually was bought by George Michael. Right. Yeah, so I don't know where that is. Probably in his estate or something. There, there yeah. is a white grand piano at the Beatles Museum uh, in Liverpool. Mm. They've recreated that whole room, all completely white, got a white grand piano in there and everything, but it's not the original one. Ah, right. You really are a Beatles aficionado then, aren't you? Well, I do, I do love the Beatles. I do. I really do. I mean, to be honest with you, I always say, I don't know if I would be the same songwriter without those records, mm. you know, I always refer back to what would, what would Paul do? <laughs> what would John do? You know, I feel like those songs, then they, they weren't written. They were just part of our, our culture. They were breathed into life, you know, mm. and, that, and that was it. They were always there. You can't quite believe it, can you? When they say, well, we just sat down and wrote this song. No. Or we were just messing about. And now we've got evidence. Now we've got the I footage know. and we can see them do it. Wasn't it amazing? It's astonishing, isn't it? Absolutely astonishing. You know, that moment where, where McCartney was sitting down, just willing, get back out. Mm. And you could hear the kind of genesis of it. And he's just playing and playing and just <sighs> kept going and kept going. And suddenly he's got the hook. And, and then you've got, you know, very bored George Harrison and Ringo Starr sitting there with their hands on their face. Like, <laughs> looked like they'd been there for hours. And suddenly Ringo goes, get back. Yeah. Oh, that's good. I like that. <laughs> it's yeah. like, wow. And then off they go. They just join in. And that's it. That's just and there it. it is. I know. And same with so many songs in that footage. Like, you know, when he was just tinkering away on the ivories with Long and Winding Road before it was a song. It's like, oh my mm. God. I just, I, I cried. I did. I cried. I was like, wow. It's actual evidence, as you say, of it coming into existence. It's just absolutely incredible. Okay. I hope you're enjoying this selection of bits from this year's guests. Sounds like an abattoir. Anyway, it will continue after this ad break. We'll be back shortly. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. 
United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Welcome back. Time for a bit more laughter, I think. Here's another guest who we've already featured in episode one of the best of my time capsule 2022, the actor Jim Piddock. But we did in fact tweet when we were putting these episodes together to ask if there were any clips you'd particularly want to hear again. And this was chosen by quite a few listeners. So here it is. My first day at drama school, I'd done a lot of acting at university, but um, had no formal training. And I kind of went to this uh, one-year postgraduate um, drama school thing. And the first day I was there, um, it's quite intimidating, you know, because you sort of, you don't know what the standard's going to be like. And there's all these other people and you're trying to impress people and mm. uh, got through the morning okay and I went out for lunch and a few people had brought their own lunch or some people were living nearby and went and I went off to a small Chinese hole in the wall Chinese restaurant and ate a f- really fucking huge lunch and <laughs> I came back I was really hungry because I wasn't used to being up that early after university <laughs> I, you know you roll out of bed at sort of 2 p.m yeah. and I felt like I'd already done a day's work and I, I had this huge meal I went back and I looked at the board to what the next class was which I should have done before I went to lunch because it was it was movement (laughs) and that wasn't the kind of movement I particularly wanted to have at that kind of moment and we had to wear these black tights with black roll neck sweaters and I was so self-conscious I mean it was just so odd I went into this class and there was a a rather camp uh, American um, teacher and he said, well, we're going to start off with um, headstands. And so here's the <laughs> mat, and there's two people will spot you here. You go into your headstand, and we'll hold your ankles, and you roll out of it. So I stood in line, and a few people did theirs, and they were oh, pretty good. And I got up, got into my headstand somehow, and I thought, oh, I'm doing okay, not so bad. And I rolled out of it. You held there for a few seconds, and they said, and release, and off you go. And <laughs> I came down on the mat and I I did release. I actually released the loudest, hardest, sharpest fart you have ever heard in your life. It, it literally resonated around the studio. It was so loud. And I lay there on the mat with my eyes closed. And it's that it's like that moment when if you, you've had children, when your kid falls over and there's that horrible two-second, three-second pause before the screen comes. Mm-hmm. And I was I had, had that two, three-second pause and I thought, this whole room is going to explode with laughter. And it didn't come. And I waited a few more seconds and I finally opened one eye, looked up, and everybody was standing above me, looking down at me as if I was in an open grave. <laughs> and and they, they looked really concerned. And the teacher said oh, my God, what was that? (laughs) And without hesitation, I said, it's an old football injury. It happens every so often. It's my ankle. (laughs) And he said, are you going to be okay? And I said, yeah, yeah, I just just might need a bit of a hand up. And And so these actually two rather lovely women picked me up and carried me over to the the bench. (laughs) And I sat on the bench for the rest of the class watching it. And I remember thinking to myself, I'm not sure I need to do this drama course. I can act. Yeah. Uh, that was it for me. That was, I know I can be an actor because I got away with that. And in a way better than all of them because they were completely convinced by it. 
it, it was extraordinary. It was like a gunshot, the fart. It was so loud. Uh, and it did sound like something cracking. And then afterwards in the men's dressing room, uh, there was a student there who actually also happened to be American. And um, everyone was saying, you're going to be okay, you know. And you know, I said, yeah, yeah, I'm sure. Usually, you know, a day or two, it's fine. And in fact, sometimes it's, you know, an hour or two. In fact, I'll tell you what, it feels pretty good right now, you yes. know. And, and then everyone left. And this one guy hung back and he said, uh, can I ask you something, Jim? And I said, yeah, sure. He said, you farted, didn't you? <laughs> and I said, yeah. And he said, fucking A, man. And he high-fived me. Uh, and then we were fast friends afterwards. Yeah. But that was a turning point for me because I went, I can do it. I can act. There you are, straight from the horse's mouth. I knew I could act when I discovered that I could lie to people convincingly. Yeah, act or become a con artist. Of course, you may say there's no real difference, but there is no school, is there, for con artists? And if there was, would con artists go to the lengths that the actor Mike Grady, star of Last of the Summer Wine and Citizen Smith, went to, to get to his? I sat with my mum at Sir Thomas Rich's school in the middle of Gloucester, which was a grammar school, and before a committee. And they'd been talks. I was working in community theatre, you know, I was doing stuff when I was 16, 17, I was doing plays and poetry, I was writing, I was doing, you know, I was kind of, you know, in there. And um, they said, we have wonderful reports you know, we're going to help you, you know. They said, when you hear from the drama school, let us know and we'll process the grant. Well, I didn't hear. I didn't hear anything from this drama school. So on the first day of term, I hitchhiked from Gloucester down to Bristol and sat under a tree at about 7.30 in the morning and watched all the students arriving. And I wasn't, I'd heard nothing. I, I didn't know what to do. I mean, I didn't, I just didn't know why I was there. But I, I sat there and I watched them. And then when all the doors closed and everybody was in, I went and knocked on the door. Uh, I rang the bell, actually. And the <laughs> vice principal came, a man called Adrian Cairns, who was immensely tall with a dome fair, lovely man. And he looked down, he remembered me from the hundreds of people they'd seen. He remembered me. He says, Mike, it's Michael, isn't it? And I said, I said, yes. And he said, you didn't get in? <laughs> I said, uh, well, I didn't get a letter. I said, nobody told me I haven't got in. I said, I've just come down. Just have a look. And I've got a grant waiting. Yeah, I've got a grant waiting. He said, he said, he said <laughs> come in. <laughs> oh, brilliant. And he sat me in the office of the principal, and I could hear him laughing with the secretary outside. She said, he's done what? And he just turned up. <laughs> brilliant. And I was like this spotty, oiky, sweaty kid, you know, and I was feeling like shit by this mm. time. I mean, I was like, what am I doing? You know, I don't, I mean, really, I had nothing. I had nothing. And in comes Nat Brenner. Nat Brenner was the principal. He was an astonishing figure. He'd been a prisoner of war. He was a labored socialist and a decent man. And he stood in the doorway, looking at me with this sea of gray hair, looking down, his glasses on his head. He said, what are you doing here, boy? <laughs> and I, I did the same thing. I said, well, the thing is, uh, I came from a mission. I went, you know, uh, I went home. I, they, they got a grant for me and everything else. I've been in the committee and my mum said this and that. And I, and I hitchhiked him back. And uh, he just looked at me. His mouth was open. And he went and sat behind his desk. And he just looked at me like that, like I was <laughs> Martian. And he said, I, I, I wouldn't know what to do with you. He said, for a start, we haven't got enough lockers. <laughs> and eventually I, th I thought this is just too embarrassing for words. I was just sweating with shame. Mm. And as I was leaving, I said, look, I said, is there any point in me auditioning next year? And he said, 
And then he reached up and took down a piece of A4 and said, I'm just writing your name down. You're in next year. What an uplifting story about the beginning of a journey. The actor Josh Bolt is actually at the start of his journey, although to look at the things he's already done, you'd think he was over halfway through. He was in Benidorm, Last Tango in Halifax. He's soon to be seen in the Tom Hanks and Steven Spielberg production, Masters of the Air, the final part of the Band of Brothers series. And this is him talking about working with George Clooney in Catch-22 and why it means so much to him. And then the following Monday, we had the weekend, we sat with him, and Monday morning, me and my auntie and my cousin go into this um, to this room, and we sat there, and I'm sat doing a crossword with him. And he was still sort of compass mentis at this point. And I, uh, phone goes about nine o'clock in the morning. Curtis Brown, this is, this is, uh, you don't ring this early. So I go out of the room and I'm trying to, of course, fighting for signal in a hospital. So I'm running around these like, you know, stairways and <laughs> eventually found a corner and got in touch. And he said, uh, oh, um, just let you know, uh, George Clooney's offered you a job. I mean, Mike, you know, when you, when I, you say I broke down, it was just the weight of everything. I just was oh, like, God. oh, my God. Yeah. And then here comes the, the sort of the Hollywood ending, if you will. It was like the ending of a movie. I then got to go into this room and my little granddad's face was there. And I said, uh, I said, oh, some, some good news anyway, Tom. And he said, um, he said what, what? I said, um, George Clooney's just offered me a job. Hmm. When to go to Italy and do this thing, and it was honest to God, Mike, his face, he he was just, it was, I'll never, for as long as I live, forget it. It was so beautiful. It was so special. Do you know what I mean? We had this hug and we sat and we cried, and you know, he said, Well, I won't see it, will I? <laughs> Which was like, you know, and it was so, um, he was so proud. And the fact that I could say, you know, not just oh, I've got a job, because that would have been, it wouldn't have been important. It was the fact that, you know, I could go, George Clooney's just offered me this role. You know, I'm mm, going to be mm-hmm. working with him and being directed by him. And it just lifted the whole thing. Do you know what I mean? It was just because then extended family would come and visit us and he'd say, oh, um, go get a bottle of champagne. And we were like, we can't, we're in a hospital and you're not very well. And now, of course, you go, fuck it, should have just got a bottle of champagne. But we didn't. Yeah. And it just made the whole three weeks of being with him. It just sort of, I don't know, we had this moment together before, just us two in this room when I got to tell him. And... It was just so special mm. to me, and it was it was such a lovely moment. It was sort of the best of that situation, if that makes sense, you know. Yes, no, absolutely. But also mm-hmm. for him, Josh, it must have been marvellous. I was going to say your granddad must have felt blessed mm. uh, to have his whole family around him all that time. With that knowledge, you know, mm-hmm. we all know it's going to happen, but being told mm-hmm. it's now. You know, to have you all there must have been amazing. But then to get that piece of news, you get a sense of... Well, things are going to go on and they're going to be okay. You know, it, it was so, it was when he finally passed, he went and we were all with him, you know. And my nan said the most wonderful thing to me about two years ago. She said, well, what else could you ask for at, at the end than to be surrounded by all the people that you love and and, and that you've helped create? It was his family, do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, look what I've done with my yeah. life. There it is, right in front of him. And it, of course it was so sad, but it was also this most beautiful three weeks. It was the nicest way for that to happen. I feel like that's what I've sort of come to terms with now is actually, oh God, yeah, he didn't, you know, mm. it wasn't something where we couldn't say goodbye. It wasn't something that just happened. It was like we had this really lovely, long goodbye, but then he, he passed. And two weeks later, I went to Italy and did Catch-22 and 
And we had a wonderful time. And I thought it was like my penultimate day of filming. And I hadn't mentioned, you know, George, George Clooney. <laughs> I mean, you know, I've never worked with someone that famous, you know, I've never seen someone no. famous like that sort of, he's almost like an icon, you know. But anyway, we had to, did this job and it was fabulous. And penultimate day of shooting, I had a moment with George. He was just sat in his chair on his iPad waiting for the cameras to be set up. And I thought, do I say something? Not don't I? But I wanted him to know how important it was to me that he'd given me and my family and my granddad this, this, it meant so much. It wasn't just a job. It was, it was, it meant so much, you know, at the time. Um, sat, he sat there and I go up to him and talk to George. He said, hey, you had, you had a good time, kid. You had fun. It's great work and all that. And I was like, oh yeah, it's brilliant. Thanks, George. Um, <laughs> and uh, I said, I've got to tell you, I'm so sorry. I've really got to tell you. He said, uh, oh, what, what? I said, so I told him the story and said to him, you know, uh, you give me this two weeks before my granddad passed. I got to tell him you've offered me a job and and uh, it just meant the world to, to me and my family really. And, you know, this has been, it was invaluable. And he teared up and he said, uh, fuck, man, that's awesome. And then he got called away and got to go and, hmm. you know, direct, you know, he got to, to go and do something. Um, but I just was so happy as well that I got to pass that on to George and just be like, well, yeah. I thought, fuck it, I'm never going to see you again anyway. Do you know what I mean? It's George Clooney. I'm never going to, like, well, I'm not, you know, I haven't got his email address to be like. <laughs> For people like him, it's an ongoing thing. He knows he's going to go from one to another yeah. to another. It's going to carry on until he decides yeah. not to do it. But it's a brilliant thing that he also remembers and understands the joy of that thing of getting that job mm -hmm. and being able to tell your family mm -hmm. that he's not lost that. That he, Whenever you see him interviewed, you know that he's not lost that. Yeah. He remembers not being George Clooney. Yes, 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 of course. Well done for telling him. So there you I should have warned you to get some tissues out. Anyway, a little clip now from one of my favourite chats of this year. It's with the Welsh comedian and writer Sean Harris. We talked about loads of things and it was wonderful to instantly connect with someone I'd never actually met before. That does happen with this podcast, but it always surprises me the speed with which you can feel relaxed talking to what is essentially a stranger. How quickly they can feel like an old friend. I think this is a prime example of that. I hope you like it. What's really interesting as well is um, the role that comedy can play in that. That kind of, um, I know myself that I definitely use laughter as a uh, coping mechanism. And I think I've had to kind of look at that and kind of go, what's going on? Why can't you discuss anything seriously? What is going on? You know? Yeah. I have friends as well who can't discuss things. Seriously, they cannot. Can't do it. And it's uh, it's very interesting. Yeah, I think uh, I think I may be one of those people. <laughs> if anything has come out of me doing this podcast, it's my ability, first of all, to listen to other people, which is a just a brilliant skill to learn in your sixties. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's so difficult sometimes, isn't it? I think I think yeah, a lot of people get that lesson when you're quite yeah, you're you're well into it, you're well into life, and you go, hang on, I don't, li oh god, I don't listen, I just wait for my turn. <laughs> and especially if you're in comedy, your brain sometimes works so quickly bouncing off what someone else has said that you're like, right, got that in the can. You know what I mean? And then you forget to actually listen to what this person is saying. <laughs> you know? And you take the first opportunity. You will cut right in if they leave a gap. Yeah. That's the end of their conversation. You're in. Yeah, yeah. 
it's yeah, it's a real, it's a skill in itself, but it's such an odd skill to unlearn. Yeah, listening is key. Sorry, what were you saying? <laughs> listening. <laughs> Right, someone who is an old friend of mine is the actor Joanna Scanlon, winner of this year's BAFTA for Best Film Performance, beating Lady Gaga, no less. And it was great to see her finally get the reward she deserved. And I thought I knew her very well. But it's the nature of my time capsule that things come up that you had no idea about, even when talking to an old friend. And duly after a year, he then referred me to this programme And I ended up being given a therapist. Now, this therapist, I saw her on and off for 15 years. Uh, Intensive, very intensively at the beginning, and then less so as Mm. time went by. And she had this painting, this Samuel Palmer painting. And it was of a man walking in the moonlight with a staff, holding a staff, and his dog at his side, Mm. just down a pathway towards this sort of woody, moony, beautiful image of uh, the future Mm. and it was proper therapy when I say proper therapy I'm not disparaging any other form of therapy but it was the classic let's call it classic of the couch you know lying down on the couch not able to see her face and it worked I mean it I'm so grateful to that woman so grateful for what she did for me And I'm so grateful to that scheme that allowed me to go for therapy sessions for £10 a session instead Mm. of what would have been 100 or something Mm. crazy and was utterly unaffordable because it took time. I remember thinking, oh, I'll be in and out of here after a couple of years. I'll be sorted. And I remember her just gently behind me saying, well, let's see, you know, let's just see. And 15 years later, and and you know the best thing about this, Mike, the final moment, the moment when I knew the therapy was over, was when I told her something that had happened to me that was really good. Mm. And she was sitting behind me, as as always, very quiet generally, and I heard her sniffing. And um, she had always put a packet of tissues, Kleenex tissues, beside me on this couch. She deliberately placed it there at the beginning of the session. And I just picked up these Kleenex box and handed them to her. And I knew then we were done. The wonderful Joe Scanlon. Now, outside of making my time capsule, I've been lucky enough to appear in a number of really nice television shows this year, and none nicer than the BBC comedy series Ghosts. So it was lovely to have the chance to talk to one of the stars of that brilliant series, Matthew Bainton, about what makes it so special. To make it clear, we've just been talking about acting in casualty, something almost every actor has done, and my skill at falling from a great height and pretending to be hurt convincingly, a skill I developed at school. Very useful for getting out of maths. We should have had you fall off a ladder in Ghosts if we'd known. If you'd known. If we'd known that was your thing. But then I would have insisted that I died and joined the cast. Ah, yes. Now, well, that has... Mm. Uh, Almost every guest who comes along says, can I die, please? Yeah, it's been, it's been mentioned. We did the teaser with Barkley next door nearly dying, you know, or we yes. think he's going to die and we're worried that he'll stick around. <laughs> the great Jeff McGiven. Yeah. Quite a lot of fans sort of want Mike somehow to end up seeing the ghost. So they often float, you know, can Mike die? <laughs> it's like, really? You want him dead? It's funny, that stuff, because I think the pleasure in it is that you want it and you'll never get it. Yeah. But um, 
careful what you wish for. Well, true. We'll wait and see. That is the great quandary, isn't it? That's what everybody discusses, really, is, well, how will they end up happy? Because that's what you wish for the characters. Yeah, exactly. Sitcom is a sort of, it has its own form. And, you know, I hate to be prescriptive and suggest there's a rule book, but there are certainly kind of patterns to the way the form of these things tends to work. And sitcom has this thing, which is repeatability, which is, you know, you do get kind of comedy dramas, which are serial, Mm -hmm. but classic sitcom is people don't change. And in a way, the narrative structure of every episode is oh, this person might change. And then maybe they do even. Yes. But then by the end, they don't. No. <laughs> they revert. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, you know, the art of it in a way and the challenge of it is to find enough variation in what is actually a very repetitive pattern. Well, you do it by slowly revealing details about the characters. I think that's really lovely. That's the thing with ghosts is that we discovered that it's not why we came up with the idea of ghosts. That was simply so that we could dress up, you know. (laughs) But the upshot of it is that we had this other thing that we could mine so that while the plot, you know, is moving along in a linear sort of, if you like, horizontal way, Mm -hmm. you also have this depth that you can mine. So at the same time, you can be going back either into their lives or just deeper into their identity and their characters. So Mm. we get to play on both of those levels, which has turned, as you say, like that actually is the thing that is quite unique about the show, I think. And that's what's turned out to make it last because you never know with an idea, you know, Ghost doesn't have endless characters. It has this gang whose lives you want to explore more and more. Well, they have a double life as well, don't they? They not only have the life that they lived, but the life since they died. Yeah. I mean, one of the first ideas for a character actually became Robin the caveman in a way, but was that there was going to be a child who was, you know, seven or something, like just a cute little kid, but they were the oldest ghost. (laughs) Yes. And so they were going to be this really wise philosophical soul Mm. with a child's body and voice. And of course, you immediately go, oh, but whoever we cast will grow up. Yeah. You know, and that's enough of a problem with me, (laughs) to be fair, uh, playing Thomas, who was younger than me when we began, Mm -hmm. and increasingly so. (laughs) Um, But yeah, that kind of became Robin, the idea that this, on the face of it, kind of uncouth caveman who can't speak as eloquently as the others, but actually has a great deal more wisdom. Mm from thousands and thousands and thousands of years of experience. Yeah, been there, done that. Yeah. (laughs) I love it. What a brilliant show that is. And the nicest group of people you could hope to work with. Okie dokie, we're very nearly at the end, and I've still got loads of clips I haven't had time to include. Hmm, I think this might have a part three. As if I didn't know that already. Still, for this episode, let's finish with an amazing story from an actor who's been in Alvida Zane Pet, Still Open All Hours, Benidorm, and much, much more. Tim Healy, talking about his auntie Nelly. And my mum worked, so I used to ride to, ride to school on my bike and that, and uh, that my dad made for me. And um, <laughs> I would come back and my auntie Nelly would make me dinner, you know. All the wrong food just after the war, you know, I started eating everything up. You know what I mean? I had a horrific diet when I think about it. I'd have egg and chips and a snowball, a chocolate <laughs> snowball. That would be me pudding, you know, and a glass of milk, you know. But anyway, uh, I loved that a bit. And, and, and eventually when I first became an actor, I was still living at home with me, Auntie Nelly. 
And I just bought a little Rayleigh Elf motorcar. Great. Like a mini with a wooden dashboard and those little fins on the back. Yeah, beautiful car. Cost me 85 quid, I think. <laughs> first car. Anyway, I was working at the live theatre company, and my Aunt Nelly said to me this morning, oh, she said, I bought you a present for your car. And, I said, and she bought me a transistor radio. Unless you bought a posh car, you didn't have a radio in a car in those days. There weren't any, you know. No. So I had this transistor radio. I thought I'd put on the back seat and just switch it on before I go and off I went. And it was fantastic. So anyway, I get in the car and I oh, thanks, Auntie Nelly. So I get in the car and I was driving to Newcastle Central Station to pick the director up. No. I got into the car park, and as I was backing out, this taxi, big black taxi, right, poof, hit the back of my car and smashed the whole back of the car in, right? Yeah. So it came out, and there was a sign saying that any any sort of accidents in here at all, you know, there's no insurance. So I hadn't even hardly marked the taxi because it was a big, heavy diesel taxi. So me and the director would pull the, pull the back wing, you know, off the tyre, and eventually we got away and he said, ah, you've had it, they're not going to cough up. So anyway, we'll get to this pub where we're rehearsing in a pub. So I walked into the rehearsal with the lads. And I, so, you know, believe this, I've just picked Jeff up and flipping taxis just bust me up the back end. Oh, no. I said, yeah, yeah, I've just got the car. And he answered, yeah, I know. So anyway, lunchtime, I said, uh, uh, Ronnie Johnson, I said, oh, I said, damn, my auntie, you just got me this uh, new tranny, transistor radio. I said, come have a look at it. So I went outside. Somebody put a brick, right? They put a brick through the back window of the car. <laughs> I'm laughing at this now, right? Put a brick through the back window of the car and nicked the chances to radio. <laughs> it's, you know, it's lunchtime. I've had the car smashed up. My chances to radio I've had for like three hours has been nicked. Well, so we went back in and started rehearsal again. I was in the scene. I had a fag. I had a cigarette. I was smoking a cigarette. And I dropped it, and, and I went, oh, sorry, guys, I've dropped me, I've dropped me fag, you know. So yeah. I started looking for this wet. Under pub tables and that, under the chairs, looking everywhere for this fag. Ah, well, it must have gone out because, you know, it kind of smelled oh, Let's just carry on, you know. So, <laughs> all right, next thing I know, my trouser leg, right, <laughs> burst into flames, right? And it gone down the turnip with my trousers, and it gone down the turnip with my trousers. <laughs> so my right leg's on fire, right? <laughs> and all the guys, Davey Whittaker and uh, Ronnie, they're throwing beer on my leg, you know, get, <laughs> put my leg out. So eventually they put my leg out. And they would all say, oh, hey, Malcolm, you can't believe this, you know, you've had the car smashed up, you know, you've had your radio neck, your trousers is on fire. <laughs> so anyway, we wrapped at about five o'clock and uh, I walked out of the pub and I looked in the car park and my car wasn't there. And I just looked. And there was a space where the car was. And somebody nicked the car. So I went back in and I said, hey, you're not believing <laughs> <laughs> You know, because the window had been smashed. Obviously, somebody got in and opened it, nicked the car. So the car's gone. Yeah. So anyway, I went to home. That, I, I went and took me to Worsley Street bus station in Newcastle. And I got the bus back to Berkeley saying, God, that's the worst day of my life, this thing. And as I was going up Burley Bank, it was a big bank, I went up to this little place called Burley where I lived. There was an ambulance came flying past through the way. And I, I just noticed it flying past. And anyway, a minute later, I walked into the house and my mum's crying. And I said, what's my mum? She said, your auntie Nelly's died. No. Yeah. Now, that sounds like the capsule where you say, what do you want to burn forever? Do you want, what do you want to, you know? It was the worst day of my life. This was the worst day of my life, you know? Yeah. 
for all that to happen to somebody in, on the same day. But now I, I, I die now talking about that story because whenever anybody is feeling sad or or, or had some accident or or something's gone wrong, you normally bet your life that it's not quite as bad as this one. No. And I always tell them that to try and cheer them up, you know. Well, it cheered me up, Tim. And I hope this episode of my selection of guests has cheered you up. I mean, that's our aim in the end. We will, without a doubt, be trying to do it again very soon in the best of my time capsule, part three, four, five, and six, possibly. So until then, thanks for listening. Do tell your friends, follow us on social media, subscribe, rate, review, buy the T-shirt, and join the secret cult that meets every third Tuesday of the month at a constantly changing venue, particularly if you're keen on goats. Yeah, it was supposed to be a gathering of fans of the occult, but there was a misspelling on the original poster, so we're stuck with goats, I'm afraid. Not as afraid as I would be if it was ghosts, obviously. And we do have the added advantage of side products. I mean, you can't milk a ghost, can you? And the butter has given us a chant for the group. Yeah, we start every meeting by playing the theme to Ghostbusters, except, inspired by a tweet from the brilliant Kate Robbins, I shout, Who are you going to call? And everyone answers, Goat's Butter! I'm slightly beginning to feel this cult is going nowhere. Bye. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.